0: You want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, obviously comes right before 2 Corinthians. So, between Romans and 2 Corinthians, we're taking a break from our study of the book of Job uh, this week and next, and then we'll come back and and finish Job up, and uh, partly that's because uh, even I wasn't sure I could get to Easter from Job quite so easily. And and next week, uh, Matt DeLong will be here, the RUFI campus minister at George Mason University. That's uh, our college fellowship, but he's got the international piece. That's the I, the RUFI. So he meets with international students, literally from all over the world. And uh, we have been supporting and praying for him, and he'll be here uh, next week. So look forward to that. Also forgot to mention earlier, as you came in, there are some Easter story booklets. Uh, they're for children, younger children, um, and it's an excerpt from the big Bible story book. And uh, they're really well done. I encourage you, if you don't have one, uh, to get one for your family, your kids, or your grandkids, or neighbor kids, or whatever kids there are in your life. Um, and uh, so those are free, and those are for you. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 23 uh, today, so please listen carefully as uh, this is the Word of God. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to the book of 1 Corinthians this morning to learn more about the resurrection of Christ and how that great truth changes everything. Bring us to the cross. Show us the empty tomb. Bring us your grace. Open our eyes, change our hearts, change our lives, have mercy upon us. So we pray, speak through the Apostle Paul this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, this Easter, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Gladiator. Been out for a while now, so if any of these are spoilers, oh well. Um, It's a great movie starring Russell Crowe. It has, I think, one of the great monologues of modern times. There is this dramatic scene when the character is thought to be a slave, and he's standing in the middle of the arena, and he's facing the emperor. And they demand to know who he is. He has a helmet that's hiding his face. And so he removes his helmet, and he's revealed to be a Roman general. And he says, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, loyal servant of the true emperor Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, And I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. I think it's one of the great scenes of modern filmmaking. And he does get his vengeance, but at the cost of his own life. Now, there's a scene that comes up shortly afterward. If you've seen it, you'll be able to picture it where Maximus is about to die. And he's about to die, and he kind of hovers above the ground, and he's going to be taken into the bliss of whatever comes after death. And his new love tells him to let go and go to his murdered wife and son, who are waiting for him in the afterlife. It's a very unreal moment. But I think it's become something of a very typical view. See, a lot of people don't think they're justified by faith, by what they believe, even if they understand the doctrine. Similarly, a lot of people don't think that they're justified by works, by what they do or what they think they deserve. For the most part, people, at least many of them, believe that all you have to do is die. And that's enough. That's it. You know, I've never been to a home after someone has passed away where they didn't ask me, something to the effect of, they're in a better place, aren't they? They're in a better place. Even if they're completely non-religious people. Even if the deceased was not a particularly good person. Because simply put, they believe in justification by death. Now, as you can imagine, the Apostle Paul might have some issues with that sort of view. And hopefully, all those who claim to be followers of Christ would have issues with that view as well. The idea of people somehow being acceptable before God, apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ, is not a new view. It's not novel, it's not original, and it's not particularly helpful because it strips us of our hope and it rebukes our faith. The idea that we don't need a redeemer and we don't need the redemption he offers, but nonetheless, we're still in and of ourselves good enough. We are worthy of being redeemed. And truth be told, that is a heresy far older than any of us. Attempts to create a Christianity without a resurrection began very early in church history. The Apostle Paul had to confront this very problem in the Corinthian church. And the apostles' rebuke to the Corinthians is as relevant today as it was then. It may be more relevant today because what was once a local problem has now become epidemic. Here we find members of the early Christian community who are denying life after death. Their rejection is categorical and absolute. They insist there is no resurrection from the dead. I know some of you are on Twitter. Yesterday I went through sort of my whole Twitter feed, which is usually pretty depressing and I can't do it. I don't spend a lot of time on Twitter. um, Just counting out how many people were denying Easter. I got to eight before I stopped. People say, and there's no resurrection. Dead people don't come back to life. Like It was a miracle. Um, this heresy is alive and well. People are claiming that no one, not even Jesus, survives the grave. But it's funny, several people denied the resurrection of Christ but still thought they would be fine. And I was like, hmm, I'm not sure how that works. Paul's responding to this view, the denial of the resurrection, by demonstrating the radical inconsistency and utter absurdity of a Christian faith without the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to trace his argument point by point as he spells out the logical implications of no resurrection. He does this by mounting a series of negative implications that sort of follow an irresistible logic. And I'd like to say I came up with all this on my own, but you have R.C. Sproul to thank uh, for this. So, the, uh, And he starts with, in verse 12 uh, through 19, the implications of unbelief. The implications of unbelief. Now it says there, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So he begins by hitting the Corinthians with this crucial question in verse 12. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And then he answers his own question. And he does it by making a sequence of six points, beginning in verse 13. And the first point is, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. He's basically saying it's a universal negative. There's a negative proposition, no resurrection from the dead, that allows for no exceptions. You can't have a none coupled with a sum. This conclusion cannot be refuted. If A is true, then B must also be true. If there is no resurrection from the dead then manifestly Christ is not risen. So that's the first thing he says, point 2, verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And here Paul is setting himself up against all forms of liberalized Christianity that seek to deny the resurrection of Christ on the one hand, and yet continue to preach and call people to faith on the other hand. In Paul's view, this is sort of a foolish attempt to have one's cake and eat it too. He calls this an exercise in futility. Without a real bodily resurrection, Christian preaching is in vain. It's empty. It's useless, which doesn't bode well for me. And he says this isn't a false dilemma. He sees this as a genuine case of either or. Either Christ is raised... Or, preaching and faith are in vain. Third point, verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If the apostle is running the risk of insulting his readers by pointing out the obvious, it's right here. For him to add that last portion, whom he did not raise, if it is true the dead are not raised, is to spell out the most obvious conclusion. He says this you should be able to understand. If the dead do not rise, then God did not raise Christ. And his reasoning is, if Christ is not raised, then Paul, all the other apostles, need to be judged as false prophets and false teachers. To deny the apostolic proclamation of the resurrection. while at the same time, extolling uh, your virtues as a teacher of ethics is to praise folly. It puts him in the same company as the false prophets of the Old Testament. And the apostle himself sees this as a hopeless contradiction. He saw himself disqualified as a trusted teacher if his witness to the resurrection was false. So Paul is not only putting his, but all the other apostles' reputation and integrity on the line here. It's as if he said, you will take me or leave me on this point. If this is true, it's all true. But if it's not true, then none of it is true. We're all in on this doctrine, but if you're not all in... And you have a big problem, which comes to in verse 17 and point 4. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So the apostle presses home his point about futility. Without the resurrection, the Christian faith is futile, useless. It's a waste of time, energy, and devotion. And he says, if you believe in a false hope, It's to set your heart on a course that leads to ultimate frustration and disappointment. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. All we have to show for our pilgrimage is unresolved guilt, which is what Paul tells the church in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. No resurrection, no hope. Paul saw the resurrection as God's sign of his acceptance of Christ's sacrifice as the atonement for our sins, declaring him to be the Son of God and the Lord of all. Romans 1, Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, if he was not raised, we remain in our sins. We have no Savior. Both our faith and Christ's death are useless. We remain debtors who cannot pay our debts. And we have no hope. And if there's no resurrection and we have no hope, then neither do our loved ones who have passed before us. Which brings us to verse 18 and point number 5. He said, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Of all the negative implications of no resurrection, this may be the most grim of all. And Paul doesn't shrink from a brutal conclusion. No resurrection means that death brings the end of all hope for everyone, everywhere, for all time. Now in his majestic epic, The Divine Comedy, Dante Alighieri imagined a sign posted on the doorway to hell. Abandon hope all ye who enter here. Paul is placing that sign right here in verse 18. Right now. It's not posted at the gate of hell, but at the door of the funeral home. Now, every person who has lost a loved one knows that emotional hope that abides, that lasts, the hope without which we would crumble It is the hope that somewhere, sometime, someday, we will see our loved ones again. And that's the hope, that's the consolation that we cling to when death separates us from our loved ones. And that's exactly what Paul told the church, again, 1 Thessalonians 4, for since we believe that Christ died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Yet Paul reasons, if Christ is not raised, then those who have died are gone forever. And we grieve as those who have no hope. And so Paul wraps up this list of dreadful consequences in verse 19, (coughs) excuse me, with point six. He says, if in Christ we who have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul could have hardly protested louder against uh, all attempts to construct a Christian religion without the bodily resurrection of Christ. If the value of Christian hope is restricted to this life, then Christians are the most miserable of people. And their misery is this, without the resurrection, we live a life based on a false hope. Hope controls us. It involves an ethic of postponed reward, an ethic of present sacrifice for the sake of future reward. If there is no future reward, if there's no future resurrection, then it's a false hope and we've got nothing to look forward to. All the sad things remain. Evil isn't accounted for. Nothing is made right. And Paul is saying if there's no resurrection and you're hostile towards Christians, you need to exchange your hostility for pity. Christians who live with false hope need pity. They're the most uh, pitiable, not sure that's even a word, it is, English teachers telling me I'm good, Um, of all people. But you think about our day and time. If you're too modern, too educated, too enlightened to believe in the resurrection, Paul says we need to stop preaching. Let's stop worshiping. Let's stop sending missionaries. Let's stop planting churches. Let's stop sharing our faith. Let's just quit and go home because it's just one big giant waste of time. And that's all pretty depressing on Easter. Thankfully, we're not done, and neither is Paul. Because just as there are implications of unbelief, so there are implications of belief. So that's the second blank for those of you that have the sermon outlined. Verses 20 to 23. Here we begin, I think, with the one among the most hope-filled verses in the entire Bible. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. These are the precious consequences of a risen Christ. Look at the way Paul has been arguing, the way his logic works. He has pressed the Corinthians to understand that their general principle, there's no resurrection of the dead, has implications when you apply it to the particular, the resurrection of Jesus. No resurrection of the dead, no resurrection of Jesus. And now he's responding to it and he flips it. And he begins with the particular, the resurrection of Jesus, and he works to the general. What implications does that have for all of us? And he starts by pointing to what he calls the first fruits. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That has implications for you and for me. That expression, the first fruits, is actually an important uh, 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 expression. It's an Old Testament um, expression. It means the representative sample of a greater whole that is inevitably coming. It's a language used in Leviticus where they brought the first fruits of the grain harvest that was dedicated to God in the temple. It was a sample of a greater harvest to come. And Paul is saying that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits. It's the representative, it's the sample, so to speak, of this greater harvest of resurrections that will come. There is an inevitability to this if you're a Christian. Because Christ has been raised, we'll all be raised. You ever watch the trains go by when you have to stop and you know the gates come down and the lights go and the trains go by and you notice that all those cars they're all connected there's train couplings that connect the cars one to another we don't tend to we tend to notice the cars but not the couplings and they're all linked up to the very first car which is called the engine and wherever the engine goes the train follows Well, we're linked to Christ. We're coupled to Christ. And as he's been raised, so we'll be raised. Where he goes, we follow. There is a certainty to it. He even tells us the nature of that link, that coupling, between us and Christ. Verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. There's a parallel between Christ and Adam. Christians, Paul says, stand in relationship to Christ in the same way that humanity stands in relationship to Adam. God entered into a covenant with Adam. Adam was our federal head, our representative figure, acting on behalf of humanity. Kind of a bit like government officials today who will enter into a treaty that represents the United States. And their actions, their representative actions, have far-reaching implications for every citizen in the land. So Adam acts as our representative. And when he failed to keep the covenant, when he broke it by eating the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he fell into sin and misery. And so Paul says, and we sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. As a consequence, we died. We die. Death is the wages of sin, the curse of the covenant. And so in Adam, Paul says, all die. But praise God, another has come, one greater than Adam, a true and better Adam, the second Adam. Christ has come, and as the second Adam, he does what the first Adam could not do. He kept the covenant with God. He fully obeyed, and with him, God is well pleased. And he not only kept the covenant himself, he paid the penalty For Adam's covenant breaking, and for your covenant breaking, and for my covenant breaking, so that the covenant curse, death itself, would be satisfied. And it was poured out on Christ uh, at the cross in our place. So now, verse 22, in Christ, all shall be made alive. If we are in Christ and not in Adam, Christ's resurrection makes our resurrection not a possibility, but a certainty. Which means that we're able to live and die in the full confidence of the resurrection of Christ. One of the things I love about being a pastor is when you're ministering to somebody who's within days or hours of dying. And you get to sit by their bed and just talk to them, pray for them. Sometimes they can talk to you, sometimes they can't. But often, it's amazing to hear their testimony, which usually goes something like, I'm ready. I know Jesus. I'm ready to be with Jesus. I have no fear. You're just going to have to let me go because it's my time. And, and people will say, I'm looking forward to it, not to the dying, but to the being with Jesus. They're ready to be with Jesus. And wish for some way you could just like capture that faith at that moment and sort of bring it back and say, this is what we all need. We need this kind of faith uh, for that moment. If Christ has not been raised, suffering is empty and meaningless, and service is empty and meaningless. But if he has been raised, then my suffering and my service takes on new significance. Paul says, verse that a lot of people don't really like, 2 Corinthians 4, 17, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. When you're suffering, it does not feel like a light momentary affliction. Nobody, when you're suffering, nobody likes that verse. But Paul is saying that then, when you're with Christ and you're looking back, you're like, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? It's so insignificant, it's so small, it was a light momentary affliction. We can't think of that this side of heaven. But Paul says that's coming. He says, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, it's all worth it. Because he lives, I can keep going. Suffering only makes sense, and we've seen this in the book of Job, if the tomb is empty and if Christ is triumphed. It's true for Paul, it's true for Job, it's true for you, and it's true for me. And Paul now calls them and us to this firm conviction that Christ is risen and this world is not our home. His resurrection is the first fruits of the final harvest, which every one of us will be swept up. If you're bound for a heavenly kingdom, if you're citizens of another world, then you're called to live here in such a way to make it apparent, to live like citizens who don't belong here but belong there, where Christ is, where one day we will all be. Brothers and sisters, you are strangers in a strange land. This world is not your home. And you're to live here as someone who belongs there. Who makes it plain that you're a citizen of another country, a heavenly one. So Paul says, don't go on sinning. Don't stop living as though the old life characterizes you. Live the resurrection life that is yours and will be yours in all its fullness when Christ comes. And we don't always live that way, do we? Certainly there were a lot of people in Corinth that didn't live that way. And part of the reason they didn't is because they didn't believe in the resurrection and no resurrection meant no hope. And without hope, we're left in our guilt and sin and shame. We become passengers on the Orient Express. Started with a movie, going to end with a movie. I don't know if you've seen this one. Famous novel, uh, Agatha Christie, murder on the Orient Express. Her detective, Hercule Poirot is stuck on a train in a snowdrift. And um, a man is murdered. and He needs to figure out who the murderer is. He's on a train with 12 other passengers. Which one has committed the murder? It's a classic whodunit, and he's trying to figure it out. And it's the hardest case he's ever seen because all the clues point in different directions. And he realizes he's missing something. What's the key insight that will make sense of everything? Well, the surprise answer, I'm going to tell you, again, don't complain about the spoilers. This book's been out for 80 years. (laughs) If you haven't read it, if you haven't seen any of the four movies, you know... Right. What's the key insight? Everybody done it. All 12 murdered the man. And suddenly everything makes sense. They're all the villains. They're all the murderers. They're all in it. And this is the clue that the gospel gives you, without which your life doesn't make sense, and society doesn't make sense, and history doesn't make sense. We're all in it. No one is righteous. No, not one. We're under the penalty of Adam, which means we're in desperate need of a second Adam. Jim Keller wrote in his book, The Reason for God, If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? If Jesus really defeated death, that gives credence to every claim he ever made. And if he did not defeat death, then every claim you ever made is proven false. In the words of the famous historian uh, Jaroslav Pelikan, historian of the Church, he wrote, "If Christ is risen, then nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, then nothing else matters." Tim Keller wrote, he said, I like the doctrine of the resurrection because it's just as hard and harsh as life itself. In other words, the resurrection has a sharp edge. When it evaluates life, there's something very hard about what he says. If Christ was bodily raised from the dead, a real historical event, that should change everything. We should have hope and joy. It changes the way we view ourselves, the world, our neighbors, creation, God, history. It changes everything. Everything. But if Jesus Christ was not bodily raised from the dead, then Christianity has nothing to say. No hope, no joy, no wisdom, no inspiration. It's just an optimistic pile of stories. It says, but if it is true, we have real hope. The resurrection tells a story with a happy ending. The end of redemptive history is this God wins. And those who are in union with Christ will win along with him. He will renew the entire world to make it the way it's supposed to be and will undo all of the disintegration. The resurrection is a picture of what that future will look like. Why do we have difficulty dealing with suffering? Why do we have difficulty with death? Why do we worry about potentially losing money or career or health? It's difficult because we think this broken world is the only world we're ever going to have. And we want greater certainty than that. And the Apostle Paul says we have it. That greater certainty has been given to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have inherited this resurrection as a gift. A power that's already inherited by faith in Christ. That helps us to look death and suffering in the eye and see hope. Death will not have the victory because of what Jesus has done. Jesus Christ lost everything for us so that ultimately we can't lose anything. Today is Easter Sunday. Today is the day we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, who was and is and is to come, the Almighty. Holy and true, the king and head of the church, the bright morning star, the root of Jesse, the son of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the lamb of God who sits on the throne, the Emmanuel who saves his people from their sins. Christ is risen. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Help us to build our lives on the great truth of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that Christ is alive Thank you that he sits at your right hand. Thank you that one day the last enemy shall be destroyed, death itself and all things placed in subjection to him. Thank you that one day he shall come and triumph with the open display of his glory, how we long for that day. We pray for grace now to persevere, to live as citizens of the world yet to come. Thank you, Father, that on Easter we have this massive truth The resurrection of Jesus Christ, it really happened, and because of that, we can face death, we can face our past, we can face everything, because we can't lose anything. Most of all, thank you that we have a Savior who is real, not manufactured out of our own hearts, but a Savior that comes to us and makes us yours, who makes us your children. We pray, Father, you would help us to take the truths of this resurrection to heart, so we can walk in the footsteps of the one who died and rose again, that as a church we might be to the praise of your glory in the matchless name of our risen Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.